Welcome to episode 221 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today I'll be talking to Colin McCarricker, head of transport and automotive analysis at uh, Bloomberg NEF, about technology adoption theory in electric vehicles. Now, this is something I'm really interested in because, as regular lis listeners will know, back 40 years ago, I did my you know graduate work on the transition, basically the last energy transition from, uh, and this one was in farm farm vehicles, farm technology, from horses and steam to power farming, which is basically tractors and combines. And for that work, I had to read a lot of this theory we're going to be talking about today. So 40 years later, all of that work is going to pay off. So welcome to the interview, Colin. Great to be here. Thanks, Markham. So let's start with the October 30th column that you wrote, EV Uncertainty. Yeah, so what I was trying to get at with this piece is my team of global analysts around the world is looking very closely at the data around EV adoption right now because there's a lot of noise in, in the stories that you see and some of the big automakers, established automakers, saying, look, there's a lot of uncertainty and we're seeing a pullback in EV demand. And I think whenever something like that happens, it's worth querying a little bit um, those statements and getting into them a little bit deeper. And, and one of the things I wanted to do with that piece was sort of say, look, we've got two months left in the year. Let's do a little bit of a stock take on where we are on EV adoption for 2023. And so just kind of the high level figures there, and then we'll get into the, where the uncertainty comes in is we're heading for about 14 million uh, plug-in vehicle sales this year in the passenger vehicle segment, maybe a little bit below that. And that's broadly where we expected it to be. So I think whenever you hear slower than expected, you have to ask who's doing the expecting. But certainly in January, when, when we put out our forecast for the year, it had 14 million in it. And that's pretty much where we're heading. And that's about 35% up over last year. Uh, and that'll be, of course, a record year for global EV sales. Um, there's not many things that are growing at 35%, and it's no longer growing from a small base. So global auto sales in any given year are around 70 to 80 million. Now, 14 million of those are going to be plug-in. So it's now a very substantial part of the global auto industry. In China, the last couple of months, we've seen about a third of sales are plug-in vehicles, um, and about a quarter of those are pure battery electric vehicles. And China, of course, by far the world's largest auto market, significantly larger than North America or Europe. In Europe, actually, the sales have been pretty resilient as well, too. They're up about a quarter over last year. What happens in Europe is there are these periods where it jumps up and then these other periods where it flattens off a bit. And that's because there are regulations that tighten every five years, roughly, uh, around vehicle CO2 requirements from the European Commission. So some of the automakers will kind of wait until the year is going to tighten and then add new models, new supply in that year. So they're still growing about 25 percent. Um, still a decent growth rate, um, but probably going to be similar next year and then before they jump higher again in 2025. So the big question is, and the reason for the title of that column around uncertainty, is kind of what's going on in the U.S. And that's where you hear sort of Ford and GM pulling back on some of their investments. That's where you hear on some of this data about uh, rising inventory levels at dealerships. So those are all important and, and valid data points. I think the thing to note in the U.S., though, is Actually, EV sales are still growing really strongly there as well. Um, so year on year, uh, up about 70% over last year, hitting new records. Um, we're going to cross a million battery electric vehicles sold in the U.S. for the first time just shortly here. And there's still several or two months left to run in the year. So there's kind of these two competing stories. And that's why I wanted to get into this uncertainty topic is one is that demand is slowing down, but the data isn't really reflecting that yet. The data so far still, still shows a record year, it still shows 
um, strong growth. And it certainly shows EVs dramatically outpacing combustion vehicle sales in terms of recovery from the pandemic. Well, let's get into the theory. And the first one I want to bring up is the technology adoption bell curve of Everett Rogers. So A.E. Rogers, Diffusion of Innovations in 1962, the, the Bible of technology adoption. And this is where we get the, the nomenclature around innovators, early adopters, early majority adopters, late majority adopters, and laggards. And Rogers assigned percentages of market penetration to those various categories, uh, like 2.5% for innovators, 13.5% uh, yeah. for early adopters. You know, I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule, right? It's a guideline. Uh, but, you know, it's it's really uh, amazing um, how close the EV buyers kind of fall into this. Now, I have something for you to consider here, Colin, because I this is my approach to using this bell curve. I think there are four metrics that consumers consider when they're buying a new technology, like an electric vehicle. The mm -hmm. first one is capital costs. So what what is it? What's the sticker price? And that's generally how, at least in North America, that's how how uh, consumers buy. What what is yeah. what is it going to cost me? What is it going to cost to finance? So capex. The next one is the operating cost, and then that one the uh, the opex the EV is clearly clearly superior. We know it uses far less uh, fuel, electricity, and its uh, maintenance costs are lower. So cost per kilometer is significantly lower than an internal combustion engine. The next one is value. And this is a harder one to, to quantify because it's made up of things that, that well, they don't, it doesn't lend itself to. So for yeah. instance, Ford CEO Jim Farley said the number one reason why consumers were buying in the U.S. were buying the, the Ford F-150 Lightning was because you can charge your house for three days with the, with the truck battery. And, and, you know, there's a lot of outages in uh, places like California and Texas. So people, it was like insurance uh, for their, so, yeah. you know, how do you put a, a, a dollar number uh, around that? Now, the fourth metric is risk. And this is one that, that, uh, that is important for my wife and I, you know, you, you know, what journalists get paid, Colin, uh, you know, we're not in the upper 1% or one out of the 1%. So we, when we buy something like a, a new technology, whether it's a, a big screen TV or an electric vehicle, whatever it is, it can't fail. Yeah, we we can't have a broken EV sitting in the in the driveway. So for us, we when we do our our calculation of these four variables, risk is really important for 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 us. And I think for a lot of people, uh, for consumers, that's also an important one. And so my what, what what we're seeing is like you take China, 35, 38% uh in the last quarter of uh, EVs make up of Chinese, the Chinese consumers are much less risk averse. They've got subsidies to, to lower the capital costs. They understand the OPEX costs. They assign a high value to Chinese EVs because they're like rolling iPhones. That's very important to Chinese consumers. And so I can see why. China, you know, the adoption there. And you, if you do the calculation in Europe, it's a different one. And if you do the calculation in the United States and Canada, the, that calculation, I think it, for those metrics, you assign different values to them based here than you would, say, in China or Europe. Now, your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good framework. And this is something we're always trying to figure out. What can you quantify and what can't you quantify to develop a, a model that allows you to predict uptake? So we do... 
we use something in our EV adoption modeling called the modified vast diffusion model, which is following a similar step there that you, they outlined in terms of the, the percentages that fit into different categories. And we use a bunch of things to figure out what the adjustable market is. And that's a combination of upfront sticker price and um, total cost of ownership. And then there's also derating factors we use for things like availability of home charging infrastructure and that sort of thing. And interestingly, what we see in China is that the adoption is going faster than what our model says it should. So when our model looks at when do EVs, when are EVs fully priced competitive with their internal combustion engine counterparts, when it factors all those things in, our earlier model would have said, no, it's actually lower and it should be lower in China than we're actually seeing. And so what that tells us is you've kind of reached the steeper part of the curve sooner than we thought. And you're into this part where, to be honest, when you're in the steep part of an, an S-curve, you can be quite wrong quite quickly because even if you're a year wrong, the percentage is way higher than that or the absolute number is way higher than that because it's in this steep part and it's all happening very quickly. So once that happens, then you'll, you'll almost never get that just right. Getting that inflection point exactly when it hits and then when you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to get it just right. One of the lessons from that is that, yes, Chinese adoption is now running significantly ahead of what policy re would require. So through all the, the 2010 to 2020 period, it was primarily a policy-driven market. Policy still plays a role in China, but when we look at the baseline level of policy required for, in terms of tightening fuel economy regulations and, and the credit system that they have in place, it's actually much lower than the, the real adoption that we're seeing now. So consumer demand has now taken over. We're kind of off to the races. It's going at, at a really steep pace. The other thing that falls out of that is that generally Chinese consumers tend to adopt new technologies faster than their Western counterparts. That's due to a combination of factors. Some of it is just a younger average buyer, buying age, a younger, younger average consumer that is, is more tech savvy in many cases. Um, but that's consistent across other things. That's not just a, an EV story. That's, that's other things as well. And some of that is to do also with newly upwardly mobile middle class that, that didn't have a previous preconception of what a technology should or shouldn't do unlike in North America where you might've had three or maybe even four generations of car owners in your family. I, I, just a, an aside here, Colin, because you and I have, I've interviewed you before about the electrification of transportation's impact on global oil demand. And yeah. when we'll start displacing, uh, when we'll see road transport uh, oil uh, demand start to decline. And yep. I was uh, lately I've been reading the because, you know, the IEA came out with this World Energy Outlook 2023. And then, uh, you know, a month or so later, OPEC came out with its oil uh, demand for uh, report uh, forecast for this year. And they're very different. And, yes, and one are. of the, re the one of the reasons they're different is because they they the OPEC assumes that that uh, clean energy technology, particularly EVs, uh are still driven uh, almost uh, adoption is driven almost entirely by by policy. Yeah. It doesn't recognize yet that that the all of these the calculations we're talking about of these four variables have reached the point where now the market is driving it, and policy really is about how fast you want to drive that. You know, from the government yeah, point. Yeah, of view. definitely, and and I think our our view probably aligns more closely with the IEA view, or a little bit more aggressive. We've generally had a more aggressive view of EV adoption than the IEA or than anyone else, and certainly than OPEC. You are getting to this interesting point on that fuel displacement question, where there's very different storylines out there. Um, I when I look at what's happening on EV adoption, even with this much discussed slowdown that I hear about right now, I still don't see how you 
how anybody concludes that fuel road fuel demand anyway doesn't peak this decade and probably in the next in the next three or four years. Just given what's happening in China, the speed at which that's going, a third of car sales electric, it doesn't that, that's now flowing through into the fleet in quite a meaningful way. And not only that, but the internal combustion engine vehicles that are being sold are significantly more efficient than the ones that are being taken off the road. It's just very hard to see how, how that story would continue. You can say, look, emerging markets will drive it, but they're actually seeing pretty high levels of EV uptake in places like Thailand, India, Indonesia from a small base, but rising quickly. You can say, look, trucks will drive it and trucks will continue. Big trucks will continue to increase their fuel demand for quite a while. But the biggest source of, of oil demand is still the passenger car market. And that is sales of internal combustion engines peaked in 2017 are down dramatically from there. And we're just seeing that sales flow through to the fleet. So it's a flock, a stocks and flows question. And I think it's a fairly mechanistic one. Um, I think you will see that happen in the 2020s. Um, so I, I think the S-curve part that we're, we're talking about is really important because as you say, if you treat this all as a compliance thing, you ignore the fact that eventually consumer adoption takes off and technologies have their own momentum at that stage. And then you can't just solve for what the policy says you're going to require. Rather, you have to look at how are consumers behaving. And still from everything we can see, consumers seem to be buying more EVs. Well, let's talk for just a moment about a point you you made um, about, about the emerging economies, because this is another uh, assumption that's very prominent in the OPEC report. And that is, uh, they say, like once you once you accept the premise that it's policy, not consumers that are driving EV adoption, then you can look at, you know, Africa and Latin America and some Asian countries and say, and in India, for example, those governments can't afford the kind of policy support that Norway or China and others are providing. Therefore, they're going to stay with the internal combustion engine and oil for a lot longer. And in fact, it's going to grow. And that's going to the demand and growth from the emerging economies will more than offset the decline in demand from the OECD economies. And yeah. I'm very curious what you think about that. So one of the things I often say in this is that we, we look at how price sensitive buyers are in every market. And, and we look at what we call price volume maps. So where's the volume in the auto, in auto sales at which prices are our average vehicles sold? And of course, one of the things that wouldn't surprise you from looking at that is that buyers in emerging economies are more price sensitive. Um, and, and that means that while something is more expensive, it, it faces a very significant uphill hurdle. If, as you say, the sort of the, the price question is even stronger, it's more weighted more heavily in terms of the, the purchasing criteria that somebody might apply in those places. The flip side of that though, is that once something is the cheaper option, then those places adopt it really fast because for the same logic, they're price sensitive, right? So you can say, look, EVs get held back because they're more expensive in those places. But batteries are continuing to get cheaper. They've got a bit more expensive last year, but I think you're going to see them drop again this year when we put out our battery price survey next month. Um, and what that means is that those cars in those vehicles, in those, those vehicles in those emerging economies are getting cheaper as well. And, and that's certainly what we're seeing. We're seeing more and more locally made EVs in markets like India that are priced in the sort of ten dollars to $15,000 mark. Totally different vehicle than you're picturing the North American buyer buying, but designed very much for the local market. And those average prices coming down, 
And the volume's still really starting to go up in those places. So India EV sales have already doubled this year and we're not done the year yet. Uh, they doubled last year. They're already a few percent of total vehicle sales. And that's without a really strong purchase subsidy environment. There are There is some policy support in, in places like India, but it's right to say that the governments can't afford to give everyone a $7,500 tax credit the way they do in the US now under the Inflation Reduction Act. But it's wrong to say you won't get any adoption there. You are getting significant adoption. And I think even a few years ago, if somebody said, look, almost 3% of sales this year in India will be fully electric, I think they would have said, oh, no way, that's a, an emerging economy. You're not going to get that level of adoption. You are getting that adoption. You are getting locally made, locally targeted cars that cost an amount that local buyers could pay. And you're going to see more of those. You're seeing more of the Chinese automakers starting to export their vehicles to other emerging non-OECD countries. And those are going to continue to drive volume in those places as well. That I want to, I want to zero in on China and its export plans for, for electric vehicles, because we, we're now seeing uh, a big fight between Europe and China over yeah. uh, Chinese exports to the, the EU. Uh, so they'll sort that out eventually. But the important thing here is while the European and uh, North American uh, OEMs have focused on premium vehicles from the very beginning, uh, China, a significant part, uh, portion of Chinese EV development was around affordable EV. Yeah. So you you see the, uh, my yeah. favorite is the Guangdong Mini, you know, for $4,500 US. I mean, you, and you're right. I mean, it probably wouldn't even uh, be allowed, uh, you know, on a North American highway or a North American road. But if you're talking about India, if you're talking about, um, you know, Brazil or Bolivia or someplace, it works really well. And and so, to what oh no, the other thing is, China's rethinking its Belt and Road Initiative. It's now going spending. Uh, it's pivoted to to clean energy, like renewables for starters, and, instead of coal. And electric vehicles are part of that new strategy. So it's going to you know China is going to uh, subsidize or provide loans uh, to countries to put in their EV charging infrastructure or to you know, put in EV plants, whatever it might be. And my hypothesis here, Colin, is, is that we in North America, perhaps in Europe, we, we really, really underestimate the, the, the power of China in driving this energy transition and particularly the electrification of transportation. And I don't mean driving it in China, I mean drive, it's driving it globally. Your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. China's now the largest exporter of vehicles. And, and that's really because a lot of the Chinese domestic manufacturers have significantly increased their production capacity. And they're now looking for new markets for those. A lot of those are EVs. There are still a lot of combustion vehicles being sold in there. But what they're not doing is saying, look, we want to break into the North American market. What they're doing is saying, we want to go into Thailand. We want to sell in Indonesia. We want to sell in Latin America. And yes, as you said, the vehicles they've developed are very much from the bottom up as well as the top down. So there are plenty of vehicles targeting the premium segment in China, but there are also ones targeting city cars and vehicles like the BYD Dolphin, which are sort of $12,000 um, are, are gonna be quite, and are proving to be quite successful overseas. It's still early yet, but I think you're gonna see those continue to spread. If you want an interesting case study in it, I think actually Brazil is about to be very interesting. So Ford, of course, has been in Brazil for almost as long as Ford has been Ford, um, needing supply of rubber and these sorts of things. Ford closed its main biggest production, or I think it's I think it's the biggest, one of the largest production facilities it had in, in Brazil. 
Um, and the group that bought it was BYD. So BYD next year is going to start producing a bunch of its affordable uh, EVs and plug-in hybrids in Brazil and supplying them to LATAM. So some of this is Western automakers have pushed more and more premium, not just with their EVs across the board. They've pushed more and more upmarket as they look at uh, juicing the gross margins and, and overall profitability in the near term. A lot of them, as a result, have abandoned this lower end of the market. Um, and that's left a window for the Chinese manufacturers. Now, those are lower margin vehicles. And there is a reason why those Western automakers are, um, have gotten out of that. I'm adding the Japanese in there as well, uh, have gotten out of that. Um, but there is a there is a window now. And, and the Japanese have stayed in it a little bit more than the Western ones. So Toyota, of course, Suzuki in India also makes a lot of affordable EVs with, in partnership with Maruti. Southeast Asia is actually turning into a really interesting battleground now between the Japanese automakers and the Chinese ones. So the Japanese automakers have a very strong share of the Southeast Asia auto market. The Chinese automakers are trying to set up shop in places like Thailand. The Thai government is encouraging it because it wants to see significant FDI, foreign direct investment and also maintain its share of, uh, of the global vehicle market in terms of production. And so that's actually turning into a really interesting place where the old guard, Japanese, primarily internal combustion engine focused automakers are there, are the incumbents, but the Chinese are forcing their way in through affordable, low cost EVs aimed at, uh, at, aimed at non-OECD emerging economies. We've, the other uh, uh, concept, a curve that we want to talk about, you've mentioned it a couple of times already, is the S-curve. Yeah. And every, the S-curve varies for uh, every technology. And for folks who, listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, uh, if you imagine technology adoption on an S curve, you know, it starts at the far left of it at the beginning of the S of the S curve. It's that's when a, a technology gets introduced to the market. It's it's uh, higher priced. It's it's more it's riskier uh, on and on. And so sales are very slow. And, and but, you know, there's enough value there that 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 the innovators on, on Rogers uh, adoption curve are going to buy it. And so slowly over time, it progresses and eventually it becomes good enough that it uh, is very competitive in the market. And then it hits the inflection point, which as in your column for uh, EVs, you say is about five to 8% of new sales. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then once it gets to the inflection point, now it's at that hockey stick growth, you know, that hops on the, the hockey, the, the shaft of the stick. And, and now it's zooming up uh, in terms of sales and adoption. And the point I want to make here, uh, Colin, is that while everyone is different, and you point this out, that the, the S-curve for, for consumer products like appliances or color TVs or, or uh, iPhones, smartphones, it, all, they all differ. And they'll be different than, it'll be different for EV. But my study uh, of, uh, of like, you know, technology 100 years ago is that it's very bumpy too, or it can be very bumpy. Yeah. Because- you know, if you look at tractors, you know they were they were very slow up into the First World War, and then then you have labor shortages. So farmers are going, well, I you know I, I guess I'll buy a tractor and see if I can, you know, because I can't get higher farmhands. Then in 1919, uh, Ford introduces the Fordson based on cars, the car technology, and so that's the first real affordable, reliable, uh, small tractor. And then in the mid 20s, you get the combine. So now you don't have to wait for a threshing crew. Now, the combination of the tractor and the combine really, you know, sales just zoom up. And then you hit the Great Depression. And then they tumble. 
And then you then late they recover in the late 30s, and then you hit the, the 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 second world war where now there's huge labor shortages plus pressure to produce for the war effort, and boom, by the end of 1945, there's not a horse in, in Western Canada anywhere working on a farm. And so that just shows I I I, I are we gonna see that kind of uh, I don't know, variability uh, in the S-curve for EVs? Yeah, so this is a tricky one because as I mentioned in this column that I was writing about EV uncertainty is that this five to 8% takeoff point is calibrated on a relatively small number of countries. So there's kind of, um, we, we've looked at a number of case studies on where EV adoption took off and generally it seems to take off and hit that inflection point about five to 8%. But there's a lot of policy variables in there going at the same time. And there's a lot of different countries of different sizes, right? And you don't want to draw too many lessons about Iceland or Norway's EV market when you're talking about the US or China, right? They're just completely different scale, different everything. So I think we have to be cautious with exactly where that inflection point hits on the S curve when it comes to EVs in different countries, because I think it is going to be different. And as you say, bumpy. The other thing I would just say is that when we talk about the S-curve in a lot of the literature and a lot of what it's calibrated on is, is, is consumer electronics and, and consumer goods, let's say. And in those consumer goods, a lot of what's been used is actually the total stock of something rather than the share of sales in any given year. So say the percentage of households who have a microwave versus the percentage of new sales of something that happened in a given year. And the reason that's important for EVs is because while EVs are going to be 17 to 18% of total vehicle new vehicle sales this year, they're still only going to be about 3% of the stock of vehicles. And so when it comes to that bumpiness, you could end up with a scenario where there are some years where maybe you have a bit of a down year because of policy changes or something. The stock is still going up, but the new vehicle sales fluctuate a little bit. And that's something we're watching quite closely. I think still the S curve is the right way to think about it. And the inflection point is the right way to think about it. But the point is, is that we're in sort of new territory here because cars are something that a lot of people never buy a new car. So if you only look at share of new vehicle sales going electric, it's kind of hard to get a feel for what's going on in the rest of the market. So I just think it's a, it's a note of caution to say, by looking at new vehicle sales and saying we're already in the inflection point, I think we very much are but we're also in a kind of new category here um, with vehicles because there's this difference between the stock and the flow. And also vehicles are at the limit of people's purchasing power. They are the most expensive things people buy other than a house. And it doesn't matter if they want to buy something, if it's not affordable, they won't buy it. Whereas something like a, an iPhone or maybe a, a VCR or a microwave that we might've used for some of these consumer adoption curves in the past, once you decide you really want one, you can go and buy one. Once you decide you want an EV, if there's no affordable options, you're not going to buy one. And that's sort of a, a bit of a departure from some of the other things that S-curve methodology and approach is calibrated on. Let's talk about used car markets. Uh, I think generally uh, three uh, cars are uh, used cars are sold for every new car. Yeah. And so what kind of, uh, market penetration do we need or what kind of the development of a used car market do you think is required uh and based on your conversations uh, your your remarks uh just a moment ago it's we're early so uh, we can't say with yeah. any any certainty but if you were going to take a guess how well developed does a used car market 
have to be before we really see rapid, rapid growth, the kind of growth we see in China uh, for electric vehicles? It's a tricky one, right? We often just assume this, the, the new vehicle sales flows, flows through the stock. There's also some other confounding variables where in, in some countries, new vehicle sales are going electric at a certain rate, but then the stock is not going at electric at a corresponding rate because some of them are moving between countries, right? And similarly, in some states, you're getting them purchased on some states and going to another state. I don't think there's any one hard and fast rule there. I think generally, as long as the new car market is going electric and there are vehicles at, at all different price points, then the, the used car market will follow that in a healthy way. I think it's heartening to see some more of the incentive programs actually aimed at used vehicles as well, rather than just charging, target, targeting new vehicle sales. So we're seeing more governments aimed at, more governments targeting some subsidies or support programs for those used vehicles, particularly for used vehicles for lower income buyers, because that's where you need to kind of get that going. The other thing that I think is really important for the secondhand car market, probably the most important is residual values, right? Used car buyers tend to be more price sensitive. You're not the person buying the new car. You're somebody who's buying a, buying a secondhand car. Um, it needs to hold its value really well. If there's a lot of uncertainty all around how it's gonna hold its value, then you're gonna hold off on buying it because it's, it's a very significant purchase for you or your family. So I think once those residual values stabilize and they've both gone both up and down at different times in the last, the last 18 months, once those stabilize, I think that'll lend a lot of support to the secondhand car market as well. Let's talk about EV forecasts into the future, because you, uh, in previous interviews, you've noted that Bloomberg NEF, like everybody else, uh, is scrambling, having to revise its forecasts all the time because the the the, the EV uh, EV sales are going up so quickly. It's it's difficult to be accurate. And I've got a great graph uh, that shows IE. IEA EV forecasts back to, I don't know, 2015 or something. And they miss each one by a significant portion on the underside. Yeah. They, they're under under forecasting. And which is hilarious because, you know, there's been a lot of criticism from oil supporters that the IEA never gets a forecast right. Well, you know, okay, yeah, but they're under forecasting, not over forecasting. So anyway, um, looking ahead and knowing you know that this has been a been difficult because it's such a, a I don't know an uncertain market and rap, with rapid expansion. What do you see for the next say between now and twenty thirty for EV sales? Um, so yeah, I think I think you're going to continue to see the leaders really stay ahead. So places like Europe and China are going to have very high levels of EV adoption. Some regions within those are going to kind of complete their transition. I'm sitting in, in, in the Nordics right now in, in Oslo. We're basically done the transition, at least from a new car sales point of view here. Your 90 plus percent of vehicle sales have a plug. Um, and most of those are battery electrics. Um, and if we look at the global picture, though, you kind of have all these different S curves starting at different times. And actually, when you aggregate the, the, those together, it actually starts to look a little bit flatter than you might think. Um, I think you're going to be somewhere around 40 to 50% of all vehicle sales being fully electric in 2030. There are some higher forecasts out there and we have revised ours up as more policy support has come in over the last year, especially the U S inflation reduction act. I will just say though, that a lot of the really optimistic forecasts have also just never been revisited. So there were, there were groups 
I remember 2015, 2016, there's a lot of groups saying 100% of car sales are going to be electric by 2025. <laughs> you followed Tony Siba and all these sort of people. Those were completely wrong. Those are where we have no chance of 100% of car sales being fully electric by 2025. So I think I think there's, it's always good to evaluate what you're getting right and what you're getting wrong. So we do that very carefully and try and say, what did we, what did we get right every year? What do we get wrong? Are we all, are we always getting it wrong in one direction and try and calibrate for that? But I also think it's worth remembering that some of these people who throw out really optimistic numbers, they don't get held to account the same way the IEA would, or the same way we would at BNEF in terms of how accurate they were over time. And, and some of those really optimistic ones have also been very, very wide of the mark too. Yes, I've interviewed uh, Tony Seba a couple of times, particularly in uh, 2017, about his forecast around autonomous electric vehicles. And, you know, by 95%, by 2030, 95% of all miles traveled in the U.S. would be with uh, robo-taxis. And given what's going on in that still, industry... Still, yeah, still not, zero today, still zero as of right now. So, yeah. We're pretty zero close. Right now, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, Colin, thank you very much for this. Always appreciate your insights on, on this. And um, what is one or two things that our listeners should uh, be watching, uh, you know, if they're interested in uh, where EVs are going over the next few years? I think the most interesting thing to watch right now is actually the U.S. build out of the supply chain. So the Inflation Reduction Act has pumped, we're tracking $100 billion of investment into batteries and EVs in the U.S. as a result or directly after IRA since it was passed. Um, now the U.S. is in execution phase. There is money, there is goodwill, there is investment flowing. Can they build it? Can they build an entire domestic battery supply chain? It's going to be hard, but there's a lot of uh, ingenuity being thrown at it, a lot of capital being thrown at it. And it's still early days in the global EV race. So I, th I think that's the one we're watching most closely. And, and I know a lot of our clients at BNEF are, are working on that actively. I wouldn't bet, bet against a lot of these groups. There's a lot of, as I said, ingenuity being thrown at this from some very capable companies and some very capable people. So that's a really interesting one to watch, the build out of the battery and EV supply chain in the US. Yeah, I often talk about how the uh, there's almost like a global clean energy arms race going on between uh, China, Europe, and North America, and to a lesser extent, South Korea and, and Japan. And and that competition uh, is... is going to be a big driver of where clean energy tech goes, including electric vehicles over the next little while. Does this get to be kind of a, uh, a synergistic thing, you know, where, because we saw, you know, China supported its EV industry, the Americans introduced, you know, the Infrastructure Act, the the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, and so on to catch up in 20, 2020, 2021, and, and then Europe responds. You know, it, had, it it redid its green industrial deal because it didn't want to be left left behind. And and that competition strikes me as one of the key drivers of an accelerating rate of, of adoption for EVs going forward. Yes, yeah, certainly. We're in this phase where, phase where batteries and EVs have become cornerstones of industrial policy and nobody wants to be left behind, right? And ultimately, the consumer will benefit from that. Um, and, and I think... In the near term, there might actually slow some things down, sort of bizarrely in some cases, right? For a long time, we've worried about getting costs down. Now we're saying we're not only thinking about costs, but we want it to be made locally as well. That may add cost in the near term. But ultimately, I think the consumer and certainly climate benefits from a race to the top when it comes to the energy transition. And that is certainly what we're seeing in this era of competition around 
industrial policy related to energy transition technologies, of which EVs and batteries are a major part. Well, Colin, thank you very much for this, and we'll look forward to the next interview. Great. Thanks, Markham. Good to speak to you.